can tell that my classes have changed. They are brand new, not, not the ones on the anymore. And um, I, I must, uh, must put a disclaimer up front. Uh, I'm not member of MACE anymore because there is no MACE at the moment. This Ministerial Advisory Council um, expired at the same time when Minister Joma Patterson was moved out of office. So I hope that our advice was not the reason why she was moved out. <laughs> there was no, no, no new council created yet, So, but that might come. Um, but with that, well, uh, thank you very much for, for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. And um, I, will, I will talk to you a little bit about um, probably one of, the, one of the most complex systems that, um, that mankind has ever uh, created, which is the power system. Um, because if you think about it, it's actually quite amazing that, that the, the power plugs that we have here in this room and the light bulbs that we have here in this room are physically connected to the power plugs in Gauteng and in Durban and everywhere uh, in the interconnected power system. We basically use exactly the same grid frequency. Whatever we push back into the grid here is with the speed of light or close to the speed of light arrives in Gauteng. It's actually quite a, quite a fascinating system. And um, uh, at, at the moment, we have, we have a lot of disruptions in the power systems uh, because we have new technologies uh, Coming in that um, that are that are in the money basically, which they weren't um, a couple of years ago, and that changes the whole architecture of the power system almost upside down. But uh, that's that's the context of the presentation. I will talk to you uh, about that. Before we go into the details of the South African power system planning, uh, just a little bit of context um, from a from a global perspective. And the, the main context that I would like to give is, um, is essentially this, this slide, which shows the growth in um, two new technologies, rel still relatively new technologies in the global power system, uh, uh, global power system, solar photovoltaic, solar PV in yellow, and uh, wind technology in blue. And what you see on the slide are the annual capacity additions globally of these two technologies um, since 2000. So in the year 2000, uh, we had four gigawatt of new wind turbines added to the global uh, power system um, compared to the size of the South African power system, which is 45 gigawatt roughly. Um, that was really small and, and insignificant, and it was really not a, not a big uh, capacity addition at the time. Um, but then it started growing. Wind, star wind started to grow first. Wind was um, uh, started at a lower cost level already compared to solar PV, was, was um, cost competitive earlier than PV. Then, uh, with a time lag of maybe five years, uh, PV started to, to grow. And now last year, we had a global <coughs> new build market of 124 gigawatt of combined solar PV and wind. This is now almost three times the size of ESCOM in terms of uh, installed capacity. Um, and that is now not insignificant anymore. It's, in fact, um, the largest capacity additions of any power generators that we, that we see globally. So the 124 gigawatt um, is more than new coal, new gas, new hydro, new diesel, new whatever, new nuclear. Uh, all of that together is less than the 124 gigawatt. Um, of course, here we are talking capacity, installed capacity, and um, not 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 each gigawatt is born equal. There are gigawatts that produce less than than other gigawatts. Uh, solar and wind, uh, solar specifically, uh, only produces during the day, of course. Uh, therefore, the capacity factor is lower than for um, for coal or nuclear, for example. But uh, it's still it's still a useful figure. It's a, it's the undisputable because it's the installed capacity, and you don't have to go into the actual production. Um, 
so especially on the PV side, it's just it's just important to keep that in mind that it's still a very new development. It's not something um, PV has been around as technology for many many decades. Um, but uh, as a as a significant market, as a significant grid connected power generating source, um, it's really still relatively new. Um, if you if you sum up all these capacities, roughly 80% of the globally existing PV capacity was installed in the last five years. So it's really it's not something where we can say, yeah, we know the PV market for decades. It's because it didn't exist um, before that. If we if we overlay the technology cost development, and this is now a very generic development coming from the IEA, the International Energy Agency. <clears throat> they did a, a global assessment of how much it costs to deploy the wind and the solar technology across the globe. Um, so it's not for any specific country. Uh, indexed to the year uh, 2015, then you see that the wind costs since 2008 have reduced by roughly one-third, coming from 154 down to index 100. And the solar PV cost reduced by more than 80%, coming from the 455 down to 100. Um, and the index 100, I've, I've chosen that to, to index that to that year because now we are roughly at the tipping point where solar PV and wind are at the same uh, cost level uh, from a technology deployment perspective. So um, with that uh, rapid cost decline, what what uh, what that means basically is that we've we've moved out of the era of subsidy-driven deployment of wind and solar photovoltaic into an era of cost competitive deployment of the two. It's, uh, it's, it's literally a digital thing. It's a tipping point. You're either on the one side where you have to put subsidies in place and subsidy means you, you put a technology into the system that unnecessarily in inverted commas increases the cost of your system compared to the alternatives that you have. Um, and that was the case with both solar PV and wind for until very recently, actually, um, and that is not the case uh, anymore in, in, in many countries, including South Africa, and we will uh, have a little bit of a deep dive into South Africa uh, in a moment. But, um, but because this has happened literally two to three years ago, in the PV case, uh, literally like two years ago, um, which, which from, an, from an energy market perspective is, uh, is almost like, it's like yesterday, because the energy sector is a very slow-moving sector. The infrastructure that you deploy has a very long lifetime, uh, sometimes decades what we deploy, transmission lines and power generators that we deploy. <coughs> so this, this development is, is, uh, is very new and it hasn't, um, it, it hasn't, it hasn't been absorbed really in everybody's mind yet that this is the case. There's still, there's still a lot of uh, perception that, that the deployment of solar and wind is a costly um, uh, exercise. Um, if, if we look at where these technologies were deployed in the last uh, 15 years, now snapshot of operational capacities end of 2016, then you can see that, it, that the development was basically driven by um, uh, Europe, uh, a handful of countries within Europe, um, the US, uh, Japan on the solar PV side as well, um, and now uh, more recently also China. Um, this uh, The subsidy phase, especially for PV, uh, was really a phase that was driven by Japan, Europe, and the US. Um, and China, the 77 gigawatt that are now installed in China, really installed these 77 gigawatt in the last two to three years. So they made a very smart move from an industrial development perspective, which is um, they uh, China um, uh, created a lot of manufacturing capacity for solar PV um, about five to six years ago. 
and they uh, basically supplied the subsidy-driven markets in Europe and the US with Chinese manufactured modules. And now that we are beyond the tipping point where PV is cost competitive, they now deploy it themselves as well. And of course, keep on exporting. So it's a very nice way of industrial development where you develop an industry on the back of subsidies that someone else pays. Um, if, if you find such an opportunity for South Africa, we have to keep that in mind. It's probably the best way to, to create an industry because uh, someone else spends the subsidies for you. Um, on the on the African continent, um, entire Africa and Middle East, you see the installed capacities are still very small. It's it's not really surprising because um, installed power capacity on the African continent in the first place is uh, small numbers. Um, so it's not surprising that solar and wind is also relatively small. But with within the context of these uh, small numbers, South Africa's installed capacities of 1.5 gigawatt each for wind and solar PV, which are the operational capacities that we have at the moment, um, basically stands for the, the largest part of the of the African uh, market. So South Africa is really driving the development uh, on the continent. Now, if we zoom into South Africa from a cost perspective, now not something indexed anymore, but let's get to, to real costs with real numbers real and real rents per kilowatt hour, um, uh, then it's, it's best to look at the, at the results of a competitive tender outcome. So that's what you, what you see here. The Department of Energy has started in November 2011 to start a competitive auction system for, um, for a number of technologies, but the, the most prominent ones that I want to show here is uh, solar PV and wind. Um, and the way this program works is that the, um, that the department <coughs> starts an, an auction, and in that auction the Department of Energy says we need to procure 600 megawatt from solar PV, uh, as an example. Um, and then it asks uh, the market, meaning private participants, <coughs> independent power producers, so-called IPPs, um, at what tariff are you willing to, uh, to, to sell solar PV power to us on a 20-year um, take-or-pay contract. <coughs> so that tariff in the first bit window, which was submitted in November 2011, the average tariff that was submitted by the different part, uh, participants was 3.65 in today's money. So still a very high tariff. Um, and uh, the, the, the projects that, that were successful in November 2011 uh, basically got implemented at that tariff. They get that tariff paid for the next 20 years. And on the back of that tariff, they refinance the assets. That's the whole logic of such a long-term power purchase agreement. Um, now, now the reason why the why the three hundred sixty five was very high in two thousand eleven is, is twofold. The, the first reason is because it's, it was the first time that South Africa did something like that. So um, before two thousand eleven, uh, there was uh, no large solar or no large wind installation in South Africa whatsoever. Um, so first of its kind, you have to pay some school fees if you do something for the first time. But probably more importantly, in two thousand eleven, that was still a point in time where globally solar PV was still quite expensive. So the underlying technology costs were still high. Um, uh, I myself, I, we, we came to South Africa in early 2012, and in 2011, we still invested in Germany, which was the heydays of the of the German PV market. Um, uh, we invested into a, a small part of a of a large ground-mounted PV facility, and we paid three euros per installed watt for that uh, system. Now today, you pay roughly 80 euro cents. So that's within five years, basically. Um, but but the three euros per watt was the underlying cost that that still that is still reflected by this high tariff. 
Um, but then uh, this, this, uh, the second bit window was already quite a bit lower, March 2012, third bit window, fourth bit window, and the last one is the so-called bit window 4 expedited, um, which was submitted in November 2015. And in that last bit window, um, the average tariff was now for the first time the same for both solar PV and wind at 62 cents a kilowatt hour. Um, and that's uh, an 80% cost reduction on the PV side, 60% on the wind side, basically the same development that we see globally as well, um, mirrored in, in South Africa. Um, and now 62 cents, of course, is an interesting number, um, uh, but, but only, uh, only, only relative statements have absolute validity, so we need to make it relative to something. Um, what does it actually mean, the 62 cents? And often these numbers are compared to the current production cost of ESCOM. Um, which is also, it's an interesting comparison, but it's not the correct comparison. Because um, if, you, if, you are, if you have a power system, an existing power system, at some point in time you have to build new power capacity, um, simply because the old system is, uh, is, is slowly but surely phasing out, it's coming to an end of its life. So you have to compare the different new build options with each other. Um, comparing the 62 cents with the, the cost of an operational fleet that is um, on average more than 30 years old and that had access to very cheap coal mines, um, which is not the case anymore for new uh, coal-fired power stations. Um, it's, not, it's not the right comparison. It's like, um, it's like making the, the decision to buy a new car on the basis of how much fuel, uh, how much you pay for the fuel of your old 20-year-old car that has no capital cost anymore. Um, so, so if we compare uh, the, the 62 cents now with, <coughs> with alternative new build options, then we have we are in a very fortunate situation in South Africa um, because we probably probably for the first time uh, are able to compare three very different technologies um, directly with each other uh, because the Department of Energy has not only procured um, solar and wind in competitive uh, auction uh, system but also two baseload coal independent power producers and uh, the average tariff for these. Uh, for the baseload coal program <coughs> was uh, published uh, last year in October and uh, that came out at one rand and three cents. Mm -hmm. So now what we have here is, uh, is three numbers that where the only difference between the three numbers is the underlying technology. Everything else from a, from a commercial setting perspective is exactly the same. It's the, the same country in the first place, so same country risk that that is always tricky if you compare tariffs from different countries with, the, with each other because it's not the same environment. Um, the, the procuring agency, the Department of Energy, is exactly the same. It's the same process that these auctions, uh, the bids went through. Um, it's long-term take-or-pay contracts, um, and the only difference is the underlying technology. So we, we know with, with, very, with very high accuracy that, um, uh, that a new solar PV or a new wind uh, um, uh, power plants uh, today is roughly 40% cheaper than a new baseload coal-fired power station um, on a per kilowatt hour basis. Now, um, the, uh, the, the immediate reaction to that is usually, yes, but the one is variable, solar and wind, and the other one runs at stable mm -hmm. output, at constant output all the time, which is 100% correct. And uh, uh, because none of these three technologies on its own can supply our actual power system demand because it doesn't match our demand. A baseload coal station doesn't match our demand. 
because it runs with constant output, but our power system demand is not constant. It picks up in the morning, it peaks in the evening, and then it goes down uh, at night again. And uh, solar and wind clearly only produces when the sun is shining and the wind is blowing. So because none of them can supply the power system on its own, we need to put them together and we need to mix them and we need to, we need to find the cost optimal mix taking into account the different technical characteristics of all of them. And that's exactly what an IRP does, what an integrated resource plan uh, does. So um, that brings me to the, to the first chapter of, um, of the actual planning process. Um, the, the general approach to power system planning in South Africa that, that, uh, that we take, it's actually a very, very good process. Um, not, not many countries are embarking on such a central planning process uh, anymore, uh, but it's actually a, a very valuable process because you can really take a system view on the design of the entire power system. Um, so the, 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 the process that we follow is, an, is, is called the integrated resource plan. Um, the, the enforceable <laughs> IRP that we have in South Africa is still the IRP 2010, which was developed, as the name suggests, in 2010. It was promulgated in early 2011, um, and the planning horizon was until 2030. Now, um, if you remember the, uh, the cost data that you saw for the global cost data and also the cost data within South Africa, uh, since 2010, since the, this plan uh, was developed, a lot has changed on the solar and wind side from a cost perspective. Um, but this is still the plan as it, as it stands. Um, uh, currently, the so-called IRP 2016 is under development. Um, that uh, It has a new planning horizon. It looks until 2050, uh, which is very important because between 2030 and 2040, a lot of the existing coal fleet will decommission. Um, and if you don't capture that in your planning horizon, then you might make decisions pre-2030 that are not optimal because you ignore the post-2030 uh, timeframe. So that is currently being developed, and it was um, the, tr the first draft was published in November 2016, so last year. Um, in, in principle, how this whole IRP works, and this is now just a just a very high-level conceptual overview of, of how this uh, how this uh, the, the approach works. So we have our planning and our simulation world. <clears throat> in that planning and simulation world, you have at the at the center of that um, uh, of that planning world um, is is a mathematical modeling framework. Um, the the commercial software tool that is used in South Africa is called Plexos. Um, you can use any any tool. There are open source uh, software tools as well. Uh, doesn't have to be a commercial. Um, uh, software platform, but that's what ESCOM and the Department of Energy and we, because uh, we want to be aligned with the department and, and ESCOM, we have decided to use that tool as well. Um, what what Plexus does is um, uh, it uses all the different input param parameters that you see on the left-hand side, and it tries to find the most cost-optimal um, supply mix um, uh, in the power system um, over the planning horizon. So planning horizon, uh, in this case, until 2050. Um, so you put into that mathematical model, you put your demand forecast. That's some, the most important one because um, uh, your demand determines how much, you ha how much you have to build in the first place. Um, uh, then you need to look at your existing supply. So what power generators do we already have today and how will they gradually phase out over the next decades until 2050? Um, and then you have your new supply options. So you can build new stuff to fill the gap between growing demand and declining supply. Um, and for the new supply options, you have to make technology uh, cost assumptions and you have certain technical characteristics of all the different power generators. 
um, and then you have some constraints that you that you might or might not enforce on the on the model. Um, in 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 our case, it's uh, CO2 limits. There are certain there are certain international commitments that the country has made, which uh, which limit the amount of CO2 that we are allowed to emit in the power sector um, to to certain levels. Um, and then we have a certain security of supply level. Of course, if we plan a power system, um, you you can you can theoretically plan a power system for absolute um, uh, for 100% reliability, but that would be prohibitively expensive. Um, so usually you plan for 10 system minutes, uh, 12 system minutes, whatever a certain amount of system minutes per year, um, where you where you uh, where you. Um, <clears throat> Where you just accept that uh, the customer demand will not always be able to be met with the with the fleet of power generators that you build, because it can always happen that two very large power generators um, go down at the same time. And um, if you if you prepare for that, if you have to overbuild massive capacities, and you could reduce your uh, your system minutes uh, by two or three minutes, but it would be very expensive to do that. Um, so and then the outputs of this of this mathematical uh, planning framework of this uh, Plexos uh, model are then for uh, for different scenarios your total system cost um, which is your objective function um, your capacity expansion how many gigawatt of what technology do you need to build in which year um, what are the resulting different energy shares in the different years from the different technologies what are the CO two emissions what is the water usage. Um, and then usually these these numbers that come out as, as raw data coming out of a mathematical tool then usually go into a policy discussion. And um, for one or the other reason, the exact outcome of the model might not you might not want to implement that, and you might deviate from the from the mathematical least cost model, and that then becomes the final uh, the final IRP. Um, so in an ideal world. Um, uh, you uh, clearly, if you, if you have such a if you have such a model that is that is complex and then models in in hourly time resolution your power system from today until 2050, um, clearly there are many many uncertainties which you uh, which you try to capture by modeling different scenarios. So your base case is the best that you have um, with all the assumptions that you have, and you know that uh, all of them are wrong basically, um, some more, some less. But um, you have all your planning facts. They feed into your model. You determine your least cost base case, and that's your base case. And now you have a now you have a solid starting point from which you can now deviate to understand a little bit better what that system actually um, uh, looks like that you are dealing with. And now you can run different scenarios. For example, you can put a constraint in that you limit the amount of renewables that you can deploy in the system uh, in a certain year or in, in total, um, and then. Per definition, because the base case is the least cost case, you will now increase the total system cost if you put a constraint uh, in place. Um, or you can put other constraints and you force in certain technologies that are not part of the least cost base case. You just force them in and then you know what the cost implications are of uh, deploying a certain technology. Um, or you can push CO2 uh, uh, limits. You can say by 2050 we would not want to have any CO2 in the, uh, in the power sector anymore. And um, you can measure what the cost implications are. And then you have this, um, basically this table. You have your different cases, your different scenarios. You know what the costs are. Um, the base case, per definition, the lowest. And then uh, the other scenarios are more expensive. And then you can make an informed decision, value for money. Uh, well, what scenario or what mixes of scenarios do we actually want to deploy? That's the ideal approach. Now, um, 
in in reality, the IRP that is currently being updated, uh, at least the version that was that was published in November last year, um, the draft IRP 2016, uh, entailed a limitation. Um, we're not not sure, but because it's currently being updated, we don't know what the what ESCOM and the department are doing with these with these limitations. But at least in the in the draft IRP 2016 base case from November last year, there was a limitation imposed on the amount of wind and solar PV capacity that the model was allowed to deploy in any given year. Um, and uh, and that there was no technical or economical reason given for that in the in the plan. So clearly, if you uh, if you limit something, and if that something is a big part of your least cost option, then clearly the model has to choose something else uh, because it's a it's an active constraint. It's a constraint that really has an implication on your on your model. So um, we therefore um, we we decided that we we were interested in understanding what the what the true least cost mix looks like. So um, we did our own study, uh, which which eventually became the formal CSR input into the IRP, um, and we determined the least cost electricity mix um, over the planning horizon until 2050. Um, the majority of the assumptions we kept exactly as per the draft IRP 2016. Um, some of them, we will get to that later, some of the assumptions are actually not very realistic, but we kept them nevertheless because we wanted to see the, the, the effect of lifting the renewables limits. We didn't want to see other effects, but just that effect in isolation. So um, the most important uh, deviation that we did from the IRP 2016 was we didn't, we didn't uh, put any new build limits on renewables. Um, nor on any other technology for that matter. We want to see what is the clean least cost mix look like. Um, we adjusted the solar PV and the wind costing as well, but that was a smaller effect. It didn't really have a large effect on the outcome, just on the uh, objective function on the total cost, but not on the on the mix. Um, and then we did uh, the techno-economical optimization as you would do in an, in an IRP. Then we have basically three cases that we compare with each other. Uh, two cases come straight out of the IRP 2016, and you will see them later. The one is called the IRP 2016 base case, and the other one is called IRP 2016 carbon budget case. Uh, carbon budget uh, has more stringent CO2 limits uh, than the base case. And then we have the least cost case that we that we developed. <clears throat> uh, and then we used the Blacksoft uh, software platform, which with with exactly the same model runs the same software platform as um, as ESCOM and the department are using. Um, now, just uh, one, one, uh, a few sentences um, on the scope of the of the model. Um, what you see here, sorry, it's, a, it's quite a busy slide, but what uh, what you see here is um, illustratively, without actual numbers put to it, um, you see the actual the cost breakdown of the power system. So the entire power system that we run, everything that we do here, the the lights and the electric appliances and so on. Um, if we sum the entire cost of the power system together, then we have roughly this breakdown that you see here. So the bulk of our total cost um, in the power system are the cost of generating the kilowatt hours. Um, in ESCOM terms, it would be called GX, generation. It's a, uh, so the, uh, the, the categories that you see here are also the divisions within ESCOM, so that's exactly how the utility is structured as well along these lines. So generation, producing the electricity in the first place, that's the most expensive uh, part. Then we have our transmission network, roughly one order of magnitude smaller than the cost of generation. Um, so transmission network is a large high voltage and highest voltage network that transports over large distances from Gauteng all the way down to the Western Cape or vice versa at night. Um, 
Then we have the distribution network that brings the electricity to the end customer. Um, and then we have uh, system services, uh, reserve provision, um, balancing power, um, uh, uh, power quality measures. This is another order of magnitude smaller than, uh, than transmission, so roughly 1% of the total generation. Um, and then, of course, we have stuff like metering, building, customer service, but that's really, really tiny. It's not really part of any optimization. So in the IRP, not only in our model, but in the general IRP approach in South Africa, the, this Plexus model only looks at the optimization of generation. It doesn't look at any of the other costs. What you what you can do, um, uh, in principle, it's, it's, it's possible. There are packages where what where you can do that with Plexus. You can co-optimize <laughs> transmission and generation at the same time. You can do that, but the but the um, the problem that you have to solve becomes much more complicated, and the and the the solving time now increases from maybe one day to a couple of days, if not weeks. So it's um, it's really it's it's a, it's a question whether whether you get the value out of that of, uh, of of doing that. So what we did, we stayed on the level of purely generation optimization, which basically, um, if you only if you only optimize the mix of generators, you basically take a copper plate view. You assume that you can transport electricity without any limitations from any place to to any place, and you just optimize the mix of, uh, of different power generators. <clears throat> we then did a high-level um, uh, uh, costing um, ex post. So after we optimized generation, we then costed the different scenarios, the base case, the carbon budget case, and the least our least cost case. Um, and we costed the different transmission um, expansions that are required in the three different cases. And we did that after the fact. But it was not part of the optimization. So I just want to uh, uh, want to want to make that uh, clear. What we um, uh, when I, when I show you numbers about what the different scenarios cost, we assumed across the board for all scenarios, we assumed that uh, all the costs on the right hand side that are not generation that they are 30 cents a kilowatt hour, um, because that is the current status of these costs in ESCOM, transmission, distribution, customer service, all of that together is roughly 30 cents a kilowatt hour. Uh, that's the team that did the work, but more important is the is the work itself. So the <clears throat> the key input assumptions. Let's just flip flip through them. Uh, basically, along the lines what I mentioned before. Now, just with uh, numbers put to it, um, the most important one: the electricity demand. Um, the uh, the demand forecast. Um, we, we we today we have an electricity demand of approximately 250 terawatt hours a year in in South Africa. Um, the, the forecast is that by 2050 that will roughly double to 520 terawatt hours a year. Um, whether or not that will materialize, it's really, uh, I, I don't think anybody knows whether that, will, whether that will happen. There are many arguments why electricity demand would stabilize or would even decline. Um, a change of the structure of the, of the economy and more service-orientated and less manufacturing, less industry. But on the other hand, South Africa is still, we sometimes forget that, is still a, a relatively low-developed economy overall. Um, of course, not where we are right now and not in Gauteng, but as a whole country, we are sitting at roughly $7,000 uh, per, per capita GDP. Which is, um, which is, I think it's now below world average. So it's not. Um, there's still a lot of room for economic development, which of course leads to electricity demand increase. So you have these two effects, and it's very difficult to say where exactly would we end up. Um, 
if the 520 terawatt hours a year materialized by 2050, then South Africa, with the population that we will have in 2050, would still be less electricity per capita consumption than Australia today. So just to put things into perspective, it looks like a very massive increase, but we have to keep it into perspective that we, it's, it's a large country, 55 million today, 70 million in 2050, um, 500 terawatt hours is not completely unreasonable for such a large country. Now on the supply side, what I, what I mentioned before, existing supply, so we have our demand forecast, and now we have our supply forecast, we have um, a number of existing power generators. We, we have assumed everything to be existing that either existed in 2016, that's the most obvious one, or that is under construction, uh, Medupi and Kusile, um, or that has been procured, like um, independent power producers that went through the procurement process have been identified as preferred bidders. Whether the project already um, uh, was already installed or not, it doesn't matter. We said whatever has been procured is, is, um, is existing. And uh, now you have your existing uh, power stations, 200 terawatt hours today coming from the coal fleet. And then we have 5% uh, from nuclear and 5% from hydro um, uh, imported Kawarabasa from, from Mozambique. And then we have a very small portion, roughly 3% today from wind, uh, solar PV and CSP. <clears throat> All these existing generators, there, there will be an increase on the coal side because we do be in Kusile come online until the mid uh, early 2020s. And then we see a decline on the coal side because around mid 2020s, ESCOM will start decommissioning the old coal stations. And uh, that has nothing to do with, with, any, uh, with any other supply options. It's purely because they become too old. And it's not economical anymore to keep them alive. Uh, once a power station is 60 years old, um, if you do a major revamp, it's basically like a new build uh, of, a, of a power station. So now we have that the demand forecast. We have the supply uh, forecast of our existing supply. Um, the task of the IRP is basically to fill that gap and uh, to build the cost-optimal mix to supply this gap. And uh, uh, you, you can see that, that if we have a planning horizon until 2050, we basically have the task that is in front of us is to build an entire new power system because we have a demand supply gap of 440 terawatt hours in 2050. And 440 terawatt hours on its own is a significantly sized electricity system, and we have to build that entirely new. So it's, it's almost like a greenfield uh, approach. Now, just, just one word on the, on the actual uh, costs that go into the Plexus model. Um, if you, 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 you might have... Uh, you might be familiar with the concept of uh, levelized cost of energy, LCOE. Um, it's measured in rand per kilowatt hour. It's the total lifetime cost of producing one energy unit from a power generator. And um, the same as the logic for a car, you can't really tell me with certainty how much it costs you to drive your car in rand per kilometer, simply because you have to say how much you drive. If you drive your car only one kilometer a year, then the costs in rent per kilometer are exorbitantly high. But if you drive 100,000 kilometers a year, then of course they get lower and lower and uh, get close to the fuel cost. Um, so the same for LCOE, you have, to, um, you have to know what the utilization is. The utilization of the, of the power generator, on the other hand, is an output of the Plexus model. You don't know a priori how much you will use your power station because that's exactly the optimization task of, of Plexus. So Plexus co-optimizes the investment decision and the dispatch decision. 
it says, well, these are the power generators that we need to build. If we build them, how would we dispatch them? How would we utilize them, which depends on the fuel costs and the relative fuel costs of the different power generators compared to each other. And, and then it basically has to go back and test, well, are there cheaper ways of doing it? If I build a different mix of power generators, I will dispatch them differently. And it tries to minimize the total system cost. So the, the, actual, <coughs> the, the actual inputs into Plexos is the capex, how much it, it costs me to build the power station. Uh, discount rate, of course, if you have a long-term investment, you need to know how you have to discount your, your money. The economic lifetime of the power station, your operational maintenance cost fixed, um, and all these costs together give you your annualized capex and your total fixed cost, and they are measured in rand per kilowatt per year. Um, that's the that's the important the, 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 the that's the fixed branch of this entire tree. So um, the fixed costs are basically triggered by the investment decision. If you decide to build something, then over the entire lifetime you have to pay a certain amount in rent per installed kilowatt per year. Whether you use it or not, is, it doesn't matter. You have to pay that. It's like your like your insurance and your monthly installments for your car. Doesn't matter if you drive it or not. And then you have the other branch, this one here, which is the variable costs. There, your variable operation maintenance. Um, this is this is zero for most power stations. It's just for coal. You have some water that you use. Um, you need some fresh water. You need some limestone for desulfurization. So there are some variable costs here, but the main variable cost component is your fuel. Um, so coal or diesel or gas, whatever your fuel is. Um, and these costs are variable um, in the sense that if you don't use the power station, then you don't incur these costs. Yeah. Um, and and now. Um, the main difference between different power generators is basically a different split between fixed cost and variable uh, cost. And that's what you see on this slide now. Now we are, we are ranking different power generators um, along levelized cost of energy, uh, along LCOE. And now very important to note on this slide, the numbers that you see here are not the numbers that are going into the model. The numbers that go into the model are exactly as per this previous slide. So it's a whole table of different cost assumptions for each of the power generators. This slide is just for an easier understanding of what actually goes into the model we make. We make an assumption about the capacity factor of the different power generators. And if we make that assumption, then we can calculate LCOE. Um, in, reality, in reality, we are not feeding this number into the model. We are feeding a number of 30,000 rand per installed kilowatt for a coal-fired power station into the model. The model decides whether it wants to build that, and it then decides how much it wants to utilize it, and then the result of the model outcome is then the utilization, and then you can, uh, after the fact, calculate what the LCOE was. But um, uh, it's, it's actually, I mean, we, 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 uh, we, we know with very high certainty that if the model decides to build a nuclear station, for example, it will utilize the utilization with the, uh, the, the nuclear station with a very high utilization factor, capacity factor. Otherwise, it wouldn't build it in the first place. You don't build a nuclear station to then use it only 10% of the time. That's, uh, because what, what would happen is um, uh, you see the split between fixed and variable costs. So for nuclear, your fixed costs are quite high. Variable, only the fuel costs are, are quite low. Um, and if you, now, um, if you now half the utilization from 90% down to 45%, then the entire fixed component would double. And you would end up at two rand something. So clearly the model, the Plexus model, would never build something and then with such a cost structure and then use it only 
So that's why it, it is useful to look at, to look at these LCOE. I just want to make it very clear that these numbers are not the inputs into the, into the model. Um, and if we now look at the ranking of them, the, the 62 cents, you've seen them before. These are the actual tariffs that, uh, that have been achieved in the November 2015 uh, bid submission. And um, on the right-hand side, it's assumption-based. Um, but the, the assumption for base of coal is actually very much spot on because you remember the one rent and three cents for a new coal-fired power station. So it actually gives a good comfort that the assumptions are very much aligned with, with, the, with the real world. Um, and these assumptions, um, with these cost assumptions, you then go into the model. Um, on the, on the, now the, 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 the one question is um, that we still have to answer um, for for these power stations, all the conventionals to the right-hand side, um, you don't have to make an assumption about the supply profile. The, 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 the utilization and the supply profile is an outcome of the model. You build a coal station, you build a gas station, and the model will decide how to utilize it. But for solar and wind, that's different, because for solar and wind, you cannot decide that you want to switch it on or off. You can, Well, you can decide to switch it off, but you cannot decide to switch it on if there's no sun shining like, like right now. Um, so, so we need to make an assumption about the supply profile for both PV and wind. What we did there is, uh, <clears throat> and the same approach as the IRP uh, 2016 team as well, um, we, uh, the, the entire country by ESCOM is split into 27 different supply areas. Um, uh, ESCOM Transmission uh, does that, that split, that's how they supply the country. And for each of the supply areas we simulated um, solar, the solar output um, of a simulated solar fleet and of a simulated wind fleet, and then we aggregated it across the entire country, and uh, we then used this aggregated portfolio-level supply profile for wind, and this is just a snapshot of a couple of hours per year. This is how the wind supply profile looks like uh, normalized in a per-unit uh, basis. So you see that a, a wind fleet that is simulated to be positioned across the whole country um, would never peak at, at, uh, at a normalized output of one, because normalized output of one would mean that all the thousands of wind turbines that are simulated here would run at nominal power capacity at the same time, which is a very unlikely meteorological situation, that you have the same wind speed across the whole country. It's uh, probably impossible. Yeah? Um, at the same time, you also see that you, that you never have exactly zero output. That's also very unlikely that you have absolutely no wind across the whole country. But you see, you do see very low um, uh, output, so down to 5% of installed capacity. Um, for, for solar, uh, very similar. So for solar, you have every day like a bell-shaped curve, which you can't see because it's so many days. But basically every day, the solar profile looks very much the same. And the only difference that you have is that, uh, that there are some days where it's a little bit cloudy and other days where it's completely blue sky. But that's really the only, the only difference. Apart from that, it's always bell-shaped. Um, on, the, on the solar side, I can, I can tell you that from my home country in Germany, um, you will have many, many, many days where it goes down to zero. And with zero, I mean literally zero. Um, uh, and that's not not only for one or two days. It's sometimes for an extended periods of a whole month, where the entire January, a 40 gigawatt PV fleet in Germany produces close to nothing. Um, we don't have that here, and that's a big advantage um, because because there's no seasonality in the solar supply, which which makes it much easier to integrate. <clears throat> now, just one. 
just one slide now we move for just for one second out of the simulation world into the real world so what you see here now are, uh, are actual um, uh, actual production data um, from the operational wind and solar fleet in South Africa we have as of end of last month uh, we have 1.5 gigawatt of PV and almost 1.6 gigawatt of uh, wind operational um, and they started to come online in 2013 and uh, the wind fleet very consistently produces above 30 percent last year 35 percent first half of 2017 34 percent the PV fleet producing at 25 uh, 24 to 26 percent uh, average capacity factor so that's just um, just to put into perspective our assumptions that we used we used a 20 percent capacity factor for PV and a 36 percent capacity factor for wind with wind we are pretty much on spot with the with the actual operations for PV I think we are a bit too conservative mm -hmm. but we wanted to cater for a lot of um, rooftop PV systems as well where where these numbers come from large utility scale and they usually have a higher output um, than, than rooftop <clears throat> and now lastly on the on the input assumptions um, because later in the results sheets you will see very high numbers of both solar PV and wind like many many gigawatts and the immediate question is is always well is that actually possible is it possible to deploy this amount of wind and solar in the country so just to preempt that, I'll show you one, one slide here, which, um, which shows in the yellow and the blue areas that you see on the slide are the areas for which environmental impact assessments have been applied for already. Status early 2016. We haven't updated it in the, in the meantime. But <clears throat> so, so these are, uh, these are locations where, where real people have put real money on the table and said we will start a, a few million rand expensive environmental impact assessment because we feel there's enough wind or enough sun in this area uh, to justify the development of, of such a project. So what that means is it gives us, it gives us some comfort that, that, uh, that these areas are actually viable areas for, for PV and wind deployment. And um, if you sum them all up, if you sum them all together, the all the blue areas together stand for 90 gigawatt of installed wind capacity. Um, and 90 gigawatt is a, is a large wind fleet and you can see that it's really like distributed across the whole country. Um, and uh, for solar PV, the yellow areas, uh, 330 gigawatts um, uh, of capacity. And of course, PV doesn't even include uh, rooftop and uh, rooftop alone has 90 gigawatt capacity in, in the country, roughly. Um, so with that, I, I just want to make the point that from a, from a, um, from a space perspective, from a space availability perspective, there is no limitation for the deployment of, of both PV and wind. Um, now to the results, and I first show you the results as we have submitted them to the department end of March, where we used very conservative uh, cost assumptions for renewables and for batteries. Um, battery is another uh, aspect that comes into the into the new uh, power systems. Um, conservative meaning we have assumed that PV costs from today, from the 62 cents, will go down by 20 percent until 2050. Um, so down to 50 cents by 2050. For wind, we assumed that 62 cents will stay constant from today until 2050, no further cost reduction. And uh, battery is basically not even part of the picture because it's way too expensive because we didn't assume any cost reduction. It's very much aligned with what the IRP 2016 assumes as well. If we do all that and now we run our model and we produce the results and we uh, compare to the to the IRP base case. So <clears throat> the IRP base case coming, so numbers that you see here are directly from the Department of Energy. It's not, not our numbers. It's just put into the same format so that we can 
uh, that it's comparable. So uh, first, uh, energy shares. So you see today's energy share, uh, 200 terawatt hours a year coming from coal and then all the rest. Um, the demand grows and the demand growth is basically absorbed by um, a large nuclear fleet and a mix of renewables and uh, natural gas. Um, coal stays more or less stable from today until 2050, which means the decommissioning of the coal fleet is absorbed by um, a relatively large new built uh, coal program. Um, so by 2050, in the base case, we end up in a in a 30-30, in a one one third each type of scenario: one third coal, one third nuclear, and one third all the rest. Um, then, if if we apply more stringent carbon limits. <coughs> Uh, what happens then is that uh, coal is basically phased out, so there's no new coal being built in that in that scenario. Um, what you see there, the 78 terawatt hours in 2050 is Medupi and Kusile, but there's no new built uh, coal station. Um, and the whole new demand is absorbed by a large nuclear fleet, uh, almost 200 terawatt hours in 2050, um, slightly increased solar and wind, but not not that much, and uh, more gas, actually, um, in, in the system. You need the gas for the balancing, because um, because solar and wind is variable, and uh, nuclear is inflexible, so you need something uh, in between to play the flexibility role. Um, so that's these are the results of the Department of Energy, and um, the... Uh, the, 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 main, the main limitation here, as I mentioned before, was uh, that the deployment of solar and wind was, was limited. Now, if you remove the deployment limits for solar and wind, then you get to this result, um, which is uh, no new-built coal. So in that sense, it's similar to the carbon limit, but without a carbon limit. So there's no new-built coal simply for economic reasons, not for CO2 reasons. And the second result is that there's no new-built nuclear either. So the red that you see on the right-hand side is Coburg, and Coburg has its decommissioning in 2043. So by 2050, Coburg is gone as well. Um, and uh, that's that's the that's the result of a pure least cost um, uh, uh, modeling. If you if you don't put any limitations on anything, so basically what <clears throat> what happens here is that in the base case, uh, if you if you think of the ranking of the different uh, power technologies and how much they cost from a levelized cost of energy perspective, that gives already an indication of what the optimal result looks like. You have solar and wind being variable, yes, but uh, but at the same time 40% cheaper than new coal. So by far the cheapest bulk kilowatt hour providers. The model tries to build them first and tries to build them as much as possible. Um, in the base case and in the carbon budget case, there's a limitation on the deployment of solar and wind. So the model runs into that limitation and now chooses the second cheapest. And the second cheapest is coal, and that's why the model builds new coal in this case. But now there is a carbon limit. The, uh, <clears throat> the model is not allowed to emit more than 200 million tons of carbon of CO2 in 2050. So it deploys coal up to that carbon limit, and then it runs into that limitation. So now it has to go to the third cheapest option, and that is nuclear. And that's why the model in the base case deploys nuclear. If you now impose a very stringent carbon limit, it's exactly the same logic, just that coal is not part of the solution. So the model jumps from the cheapest solar and wind directly to the third cheapest uh, uh, nuclear. And of course, if you now remove the limitation on solar and wind, then the model simply goes with the cheapest. And, and fills the gaps when there is no wind and no sun with uh, gas-fired power stations. 
This is from an energy perspective. From a capacity perspective, the picture, of course, looks very different. Uh, because of the low capacity factor of PV and wind compared with coal and nuclear, the total amount of capacity that you build is much higher in the least cost case than in the other two cases, um, where you have a total system of 150 gigawatt in the carbon budget case, you have a 230 gigawatt system in the least cost case. Um, so roughly 70 gigawatt of PV by 2050, 85 gigawatt of wind, um, and then you have a large peak, uh, peaking fleet, 37 gigawatt of peaking plant, um, uh, uh, peaking, we model peaking uh, with a proxy, um, uh, open cycle gas turbines, so cheap to build, expensive to run, and that's, that's exactly why you see these results. You see 30, 37 gigawatts of cheap to build stations. If we go back to the energy balance, the peaking only produces 2% of the total energy. So it's exactly what you would expect, and it has to do with the cost structure of a peaking plant. Very capital light, very fuel intensive. So you, you build it, you have no problem building 37 gigawatts, but you then use it um, only very seldom. <clears throat> um, if we summarize all that in, in the different dimensions, now what you haven't seen yet is the costs. You only know that least cost is least cost, but you don't know by how much. Uh, is it only one rent cheaper than the other two? Mathematically, it would still be the least cost, uh, but uh, the decision-making would be more difficult. But it's actually not one rand, it's uh, 70 billion rand per year that the least cost is cheaper than the base case. Um, so roughly 10% by 2050. So all the numbers are for the year 2050. Um, see the energy mix on the top, then the, the total system costs uh, 700 billion per year in the base case and 630 billion per year in the least cost case, which of course reflects in the tariff. The average tariff would be 120 in the least cost case. 134 in the in the base case. That's on the cost side, but now we have two more dimensions. We have environment and jobs, also two very important um, uh, aspects. On the environmental side, um, the least cost case um, has 60-65% less carbon emissions than the base case. It's obvious because the only source of carbon emissions, of meaning of really large carbon emissions, is the coal fleet. If you don't build new coal, then clearly the carbon emissions go down. The same for the water usage. The, the user of water in this case is the coal fleet because the nuclear fleet is, uh, is uh, sea-cooled, um, so there is no fresh water usage here. Uh, if you don't build new coal, then the water consumption goes down. <clears throat> so environmentally, least, least cost is not, it's not only least cost, it's also environmentally the friendliest. And now from a jobs perspective, um, we are not in the business of, of, um, of doing socioeconomic studies of how many jobs are created in different areas. So we utilize numbers from a McKinsey study that was commissioned by the Department of Energy, where McKinsey um, uh, calculated uh, for South Africa specifically, what are the jobs in constructing new power stations for the different technologies, and what are the jobs of operating the power stations for the different technologies. And that they did um, the direct jobs in the power stations and also indirect in the supplier industry and in the coal mining industry. So you really have a very nice holistic picture of all the different jobs that can be created. And we simply took these numbers and multiplied the numbers with our capacity and energy numbers. And then we got to these job numbers, which show that the base case has 10 to 20% less jobs than the least cost case. So we essentially have a situation where we have three different scenarios, and we have three dimensions in which we evaluate the scenarios, cost, environment, and jobs. And um, the, the least cost scenario is 10% cheaper, it's cleaner, and it produces 10 to 20% more jobs. So we are, we are in a very fortunate situation that 
we don't really have to do um, uh, uh, we don't really have to go into a trade-off discussion. We don't have to negotiate and say, well, but I want to trade some more jobs with some higher costs, or I want to trade environment with costs. It's um, if these are the dimensions that we evaluate the decision in, then then the decision is relatively clear. Um, <clears throat> now, as I mentioned, we we took these these relatively conservative cost assumptions for renewables and, and batteries, if we apply more realistic costs, then we get the following result. Now, what we've done here is, um, as I said before, the conservative cost assumption was for solar, 20% reduction, wind, constant, uh, batteries, no cost reduction. Uh, and the result of that, as you've seen in the previous chapter, was that there's no new coal and no new nuclear in the, in the, in the model. Um, now, if we now apply more realistic cost assumptions for for PV and wind and CSP and batteries, um, then clearly that doesn't bring back uh, coal and nuclear. But what is interesting is to see how does it affect the the, the structure of the power system. Um, so what we assume now is um, that the PV costs go down to 20 cents a kilowatt hour by 2040, which is another two-third cost reduction. It's quite aggressive, but it's pretty much, we, we looked at a number of technology forecasts from a number of different sources, and uh, it's basically aligned with the global global view on technology cost for PV that we have another two-third cost reduction from today until 2040. Uh, for wind, the assumption is that the cost will go down by another 50% by 2040. We were a little bit more conservative here, only down to 35 cents a kilowatt hour. Um, for, uh, for CSP, there is an existing CSP project in United Arab Emirates uh, that is today already being built at one rent 20. Um, the IRP assumption was two rand, mm. so we assume now that CSP can go down to 80 cents kilowatt hour by 2040. Uh, and then batteries, that's really the new, the new kit on the block. It's not, it's not a source of primary electricity. It's sometimes being seen as that, but it's actually not. It's just a, it, the batteries have the same function as the transmission grid. Mm. It doesn't produce energy, but it helps to balance supply and demand. Um, so we have a, a cost reduction assumed here as well, but pretty much aligned with, uh, with what, what, what Tesla would tell you, not in the US, but here in the, in the country. Um, and then lastly, what was also not done in the IRP is the assumption of an electric vehicle uptake. Now, why is that important? The electric vehicles are not, not really important from an electricity demand perspective. That's a bit surprising often, but electric vehicles are very efficient way of moving from A to B. And therefore, even a fleet of a million vehicles, three million vehicles, doesn't consume a lot of electricity. It's only like 10% additional electricity demand from a country perspective. But what the electric vehicles do is they give a lot of flexibility on the demand side. So if you have a fleet of five million electric vehicles, then at any given point in time, you will always have half a million of them charging, maybe even more than that. So you have a very significant demand constantly in your network, which you can flexibilize. Um, the individual customer doesn't really care whether you switch off the charging for five minutes and then switch it back on again. But if you do that for five million vehicles, you have quite a nice source of flexibility. Um, and that's something that we now deployed in the model as well, which helps to absorb variability from solar and wind. Um, and, and we think, I mean, that's completely realistic that we have 5 million electric vehicles by 2050 in the country. It's not, it's, it's probably more than that. It's uh, uh, probably still a conservative assumption. So if we do all that and now compare our least cost as we've submitted it in the IRP, and now we do all these, what we feel, realistic um, adjustments, 
as you see clearly, nuclear and coal, new nuclear and new coal is not back in the picture. That that would be uh, that would be a strange outcome. <laughs> um, but uh, the uh, the mix changes uh, slightly. Um, so you have you have two effects here. The one effect is that the coal output in 2050 mm -hmm. is even lower than than it was before. That's not because anything gets decommissioned, because if you have a coal station, you don't just decommission it, you will still want to utilize it. But PV and wind are now so cheap, 20 cents a kilowatt hour for PV, that there are many periods when you uh, when you actually push the coal burning out of the system and you rather utilize PV because it's cheaper than, than the pure cost of burning the coal. So that's why the utilization of Vidupin Cosida goes down in 2050. <clears throat> and then you have CSP back in the picture. And the CSP basically displaces the entire gas fleet that we had previously in the picture. And the reason is simply the cost assumption, because we now assume 80 cents a kilowatt hour for CSP, and that is cheaper than natural gas. Um, and that's really, it's, it's almost like your own decision. If you decide CSP is not 80 cents, it's 120, then you can flip this and it will be back to natural gas, basically. Um, not, not entirely, but you will bring more, more solar and wind into the picture. But essentially, with, with these assumptions, as I've, as I've explained to you, we are, now, we are now sitting at a renewable energy share of more than 90% on an energy basis in the year 2050, and that is least cost. That's not, that's not pushing for anything. It's not pushing for... It, so um, it, it doesn't hurt, because it's least cost. Mm -hmm. What would hurt is to say, let's do 100% renewables in 2050, because then you deviate from least cost. From capacity perspective, well, it's just for for noting more 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 interesting is the are the are the energies, but uh, it's a slightly higher um, uh, PV share, uh, which makes sense for two reasons. Because PV is uh, is now cheaper, it's now 20 cents uh, relatively to wind now now cheaper, and we have the flexibility of the electric vehicles, which allows to shift energy from nighttime into daytime, so you can absorb a lot of oversupply from PV during the day. Um, but interestingly, wind is still in there with quite a quite a high uh, number, 70 gigawatt, and that's simply because wind is a 24/7 power generator, mm -hmm. um, and you have um, uh, PV as as cheap as it is, um, but it only produces from nine to five, mm -hmm. so it's eight hours of the day, but we have 24 hours in the day, and to shift all that energy into nighttime is just very expensive, even with cheap batteries. That's why the model tries to tries to optimize it in in that in that mix. <clears throat> Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm done with the results. I have some operational aspects, um, uh, like the hour-to-hour -hour operation of the system. I'm not sure where we stand with, uh, in terms of time. Uh, it's some, it's some guidance. Should I, should I go on, or it's fine? Okay. Yeah, maybe a question here to these results before we go into the operational aspects, or? What's the cost? Is the cost further down? Uh, yes, the cost is further down, so now, now, um, the, the cost difference to the base case was 70 billion a year. Now it's roughly 150 to 160 billion a year. Mm. It's uh, 20 to 30 percent cheaper than the base case. Yeah. So now, now, it, now it starts to really hurt because if, if electricity is 30 percent more expensive than what it has to be, then you lose your global competitiveness in the energy-intensive industry. Yeah? <laughs> Whereas on the other hand, you can you can turn it around and say, well. There are not many countries in the world that have such excellent solar and wind resources. Mm. And the resource is basically what drives your cost of electricity. It's, uh, the, the fundamental logic is still the same as what it was 50 years ago. 50 years ago, the situation was that, that in South Africa, we had access 
to coal in a much cheaper way than most other countries because it's easy to mine, open pit mine, you put the coal-fired power station right next to the mine and the conveyor belt goes from the coal uh, mouth right into the power station. Mm. Um, and that's why we had relatively cheap electricity for a long time. And the logic is still exactly the same. We have a better resource, just not coal anymore, but now it's solar and wind. Mm. And, and others, Europe and the US, have brought the technology costs down, um, which allows uh, now to deploy that in a, in a, in a cost-competitive manner. <coughs> uh, CSP, what is it, Sam? Uh, sorry, it's concentrated solar power. Um, well, concentrated solar power is, um, is, is based on, on, on heat, so you ah, produce heat with the solar. It's concentrated, it's, it's a, uh, it, it produces high temperature heat and then runs um, in the newer versions a gas turbine, right? because you produce up to 1000 degrees Celsius uh, heat. Yeah. In the existing ones, it's more steam at uh, 300, 400 degrees Celsius. So just one other thing, there was, a, there was a funny wrinkle in your original graph that showed that wind, wind um, capacity actually dropped in 2013. There was, a, there was a sort of dip and then it came up again. Do you know what? Was it? Uh, in which one? Sorry? One of the very early, no, the very early, when you were looking at the world trade, there was a, there was a dip in... in oh, okay, but uh, the, the world trend, but this is... Um, the, the, the world trend is the annual new installed capacity. Uh, it, it was only new. It's new so capacity not, per not, year. Not yeah. It's not, not cumulative. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So. You mentioned an artificial constraint has been introduced in the uh, draft 2016 case on renewables. Do you know what that constraint is? Uh, yes, it's, it's 1 gigawatt uh, per, uh, per year for PV and 1.6 gigawatt uh, per year for wind. And, and the least, and the least throughout until 2050. And uh, and the model, if, and if you look at these numbers uh, clearly, um, if you want to deploy 90 gigawatt of PV until 2050, we have 30 years. You need to deploy three gigawatt a year. Mm. With one gigawatt a year, you constrain the model, and the model has to build something else. It's uh, it's that simple. <clears throat> What's the reason for that constraint? Yeah, there's someone else to ask. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, very easy. Who builds new, uh, new coal and new nuclear? Who builds it? Ask the question you are going to Sorry, you had, I think you had a question. Sorry, uh, have you quantified the uncertainty in the cost estimates? And if so, what effect does that uncertainty have in the conclusions regarding the balance of technologies? Yeah, um, I think we have, we have basically quantified it in this picture here because... On this side, we basically assume that the cost for wind and PV over the next 34 years will not further decrease. And, and with that assumption that we know is completely unrealistic, because we know today already that PV is cheaper than what we assume. But with that assumption, uh, new-built coal and new-built nuclear is out of the picture. So we have, we have a situation where we have, uh, I mean, you always have a probability distribution, but we go to the very right end of the probability distribution, and we still know that, that we, ha we, have, we have a certain answer and a certain outcome. So we can set that aside. We can now basically completely start fresh and think of how do we optimize the power system without even making new coal and new nuclear an option. We don't have to make it an option anymore because we know with, with the highest certainty that you can have that it's not part of a least cost solution. Hmm. So, so really, the uncertainties are now between this year and this year, and the uncertainties are um, well, well, whether whether or not wind and PV will decline in the manner that we have seen. 
that now determines whether the wind PV mix is 55-45 or more 55-45 in this direction. Mm -hmm. That's really the uncertainty. And then, and then we have the uncertainty on the CSP side, which is if CSP makes it to the 80 cents, then it's a replacement for imported natural gas. If it doesn't make it to 80 cents, then we use imported natural gas. <coughs> that's the uncertainties. Okay. And that's that's also that can be a policy decision because even if CSP doesn't make it to 80 cents, you might still want to deploy it because it displaces imported natural gas. So that that's a that's a fair policy uh, discussion to have. Yeah. Um, sorry, I think you were no. Fine. Okay. Something a bit more to the detail side. I'm just does the Plexus model take into account uh, if you consider your least cost model? Uh, you said that the use of UDP to see would go down. They won't run at full capacity. Yes. Does the model take into account the cost of refiring one of those furnaces if it needs to? Yes, it does. Okay. Yeah, so, so the ramp up costs and the the cost of a start, uh, it's, it's mostly the cost of a start, cold start or warm start is, uh, is specifically costed, and that's actually quite high. So, it's the, so the model tries to avoid uh, shutting down a coal station as much as possible. So you mean the end consumer tariff or? Yes. <laughs> well, the end consumer tariff is, um, if you look at this here, so what we calculate here is the average tariff, and that is basically the average ESCOM tariff, what we calculate here. Mm -hmm. um, so today, the average ESCOM tariff stands at 84 cents a kilowatt hour. Now, 84 cents is not what you and I are paying, because the average ESCOM tariff is just total ESCOM revenues divided by total ESCOM sales. And, and that average is now split into the different end consumer groups. And there are some that pay much higher, like residential customers, and others that pay lower than the average. But, um, but we are not, that would be a subsequent study on its own to, 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 uh, to optimize how do you now distribute this 120 to all the customers. But even the 120, so you don't even have to remember 120 because this is with unrealistic assumptions for PV and wind. With our realistic assumptions, this goes down to one rent roughly. So in the, in, in other words, what, what we, what we know basically, if we deploy a least cost power system, we know that our tariff will stabilize at around one rent, one rent five cents roundabout. And that's now, that's now long term stable because you simply, at some point, you're just in replacement mode. You just replace and replace and you will stabilize at one rent. And one rent is quite competitive. I mean, it's uh, six, seven euro cents a kilowatt hour on average in perpetuity. That's quite a good, quite a good mm -hmm. uh, price. <clears throat> um, okay. Are there are there any questions on the operation of that system? Because we have, I'm going into that in that chapter now, or not? Um, maybe I'll just raise my question and you might yeah. respond to it later. Um, solar. And the wind is, of course, a lot more discoverable. So network integration yep. and uh, network management would probably be more costly and more complex. Um, to what extent is that factored in, mm -hmm. in the cost optimization at the moment? Yep. 
So the so the, the 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 management of the network, which is basically a system operator task, that is, uh, I mean, the the really the cost implications that you have there are the costs on the on the complementary power stations, like the shutting down of coal stations and so on, what we've heard, that is all costed. So that is all part of the Plexus optimization. On the transmission side, um, that is not part of the optimization, but we costed that ex post on the basis of the three different scenarios. And uh, now the interesting result there is that the transmission uh, cost for the least cost case, the transmission cost for... <coughs> Transmission cost for this case is even cheaper than the transmission cost for these two. Uh, we were, I must admit, we were a bit surprised by that as well because the, the general wisdom is that um, because, as you rightly said, like it's distributed and therefore it's more costly. But then we realized what the reason for that perception is: that all the grid integration studies that have been done so far, usually done in stable, steady-state systems in the U.S. or in Europe. Now, if you are in a steady-state system. Let's, let's think of uh, France, for example. France, mostly nuclear. Um, if France decides to, um, uh, to replace an old nuclear station with a new nuclear station, it will very likely build the new nuclear station at the exact same site where the old station is. So uh, transmission grid cost implication is zero. Now, in our case, the base case builds 15 gigawatt of new coal. All in, that would all be in the Waterberg. It builds 20 gigawatt of new nuclear that would all be along the coastline. There is no transmission capacity to evacuate that power. The same here. So in all three cases, we have to build an entire new transmission system to evacuate the power from where it's generated. And now the, the, the cost of, of evacuating 20 gigawatt of nuclear from the coast into the load centers, Gauteng, is actually higher than collecting 100 gigawatt of distributed wind and solar generators from across the country. But it's basically because it's a greenfield situation. Uh, if you're if it's brownfield and you just replace what you already have, then of course, um, in my home country, the electricity demand doesn't grow anymore. Um, so of course, moving from coal-based into renewables-based means that the generators are now suddenly sitting along the coast of the North Sea, the wind generators, whereas the coal stations sit mostly in the south. So now suddenly you and every, everything changes, and of course it has crit implications. Whereas if you simply keep on building coal stations, they, they would still be in the south, and that's different in our yeah. case. Emphasizes the importance of making the right choice. Yeah, and it, and it emphasizes the importance of, of having very distinctly different scenarios and costing them in each detail. That's that's important. Uh, by the way, the the, the costs uh, the, the cost that we have here, the, the costing of the different scenarios was not part of the IRP 2016. The IRP 2016 um, uh, published these two scenarios but didn't cost them. Without costing, it's very difficult to make a decision between different products that you're being offered. Our regular should we up or review the IRP? Yeah. Our our view is that that if you if you are really in a in a in a proper um, in a proper modus operandi where you where you really have everything in place, you could update it uh, annually. And um, and now when it comes to implementation, what you don't want is that investors. I mean, some, someone has to build all these capacities. So someone has to make uh, someone has to make this these investment decisions. Someone has to put. Um, if you look until 2030, someone has to build 18 gigawatt of wind farms and 14 gigawatt of PV plants. So 
you don't want to every year create uncertainty amongst investors whether are you, are you now switching into a solar world or into a wind world or something else so um, an implementation approach could be that you that you do it on a rolling basis every year you update and then you commit yourself to the next five to ten years let's say and you commit that and you say well we run it today 2017 so we commit ourselves until 2027 which, which we don't see here yet, but we model it on, an hour, on a yearly basis. You commit to that, you lock the capacities in that you modeled for until 2027, and in next year, in 2018, all the capacities until 2027 are hard-coded and are not subject to optimization anymore, and you only optimize what comes after 2027. And then you lock in the, the year 2028. And so you could do on a rolling basis adjust, while at the same time giving a sufficient investment window for, for certainty. That, that could be a way of doing it. Okay, let's let's move move quickly into the operational aspects uh, because what you haven't seen yet is um, <clears throat> what what the model actually does. So so this is this is taken out straight out of the model results, um, uh, an exemplary week in the year 2050, um, and on this slide just the demand profile in that week. So it's a typical power system demand profile. Um, 40 gigawatt base load, uh, peak demand up to almost 80 gigawatt in that week, and uh, weekday is a slightly higher demand than, than weekend. Um, and now in the in the base case, the the way the demand uh, the demand is supplied is the typical way of how of how for for many many decades we uh, we we built an optimized uh, power system. Um, you put your base supply generators at the bottom, so the nuclear fleet is running as constant as possible, because you want to utilize it as much as possible. Um, the coal fleet is running as constant as possible, but there are times when it has to it has to be curtailed because there's not enough demand and there's other stuff coming from the from the top. So mostly at night. I mean, that's happening today already. The coal fleet is not running constant, but it's, it's being curtailed uh, when, when the demand goes down. Um, and then you have, uh, in the base case, you have this relatively modest penetration of PV and wind. And we, we subtract that from the top because PV and wind, um, we almost look at it as a negative load because it's something that um, that you cannot really, I mean, it's weather dispatched, so it's not within your decision. Um, so you can as well treat it as a negative load, which by the way is exactly what the system operator is currently doing. At the relatively low penetration levels, they just say, okay, it's, it's there and it just reduces the load that we, that we see. Um, so then you have this, you have this. The, the white area is now the um, the remaining uh, uh, electricity that needs to be supplied from something else. And now you can already see if you have if you have that type of load profile, which is basically only a daytime profile, almost nothing at night, then you would you would not build a coal-fired power station for that because a coal-fired power station is technically not so flexible, and uh, but more importantly, it's economically not so flexible because it's a high capital cost low running cost, so you would usually fill that gap with gas-fired power stations. Um, and then, of course, the hydro that we have, you, you use that uh, for flexibility as well. So that's the way how the power system would operate in 2050 if we deploy the base case. And uh, now, if you, if you show exactly this picture to, to, uh, to any, uh, not, not to any power system operator, but to many power system operators in the world, they would look at this picture and would say, oh, okay, yeah, that's nice, that's what we had in 2010. Because it's a relatively modest penetration of solar PV and wind, it's not a high penetration. 
So uh, to operate that, that system is not a challenge for, for system operators uh, uh, today. If you look at the least cost, then you have a very different uh, type of system. <clears throat> you now have the, the bulk of the energy coming from, from solar PV and wind. Um, Medupi and Kusile are the, the remaining coal stations in 2050, and you can see what we discussed before. The, the model tries to not shut them down entirely as much as it can. There is, however, the Saturday night. Demand is very low. The wind is blowing uh, strongly, and it's a sunny it's a sunny Sunday, so the model decides to shut it down, and uh, there's only one unit uh, left running, and then it uh, kicks in in the Sunday evening again. Um, but, I mean, that's, uh, uh, this, this operation of this coal station already makes clear why, uh, why you wouldn't build a new coal-fired power station in such a system. Um, it's, it's, it's perfectly fine to use the 10 gigawatt if they are already there, which is the case, but you wouldn't build a new coal-fired power station to then operate in that type of uh, type of manner. Um, what you rather build on the new build side is flexible power stations with low capital cost and high operational costs. Gas-fired power stations here, peaking plants here, um, and the hydro is basically the existing hydro that we that we already have. Um, and then you have um, and then you have nights when the wind isn't blowing very much, where you have to run your peaking plant very hard. Then you have other nights where the wind is blowing quite strongly, like here, and then you operate almost nothing in addition to the wind fleet. Um, and that's the and that's the reality of such a system. So if you build large amounts of wind and solar, then you will have to deal with variability in the system. And variability on the one side requires flexibility on the other side. That's the that's the design principle. Um, from from these from these areas, if you look at all these, oh sorry, what we what I didn't discuss yet is that you have this area here as well, which is curtailed solar PV and wind energy. There are times when uh, the production of PV and wind is higher than what the system can absorb, and then you curtail the wind farm or you curtail the the PV plant. Uh, and that is of course economically it's a loss because you're uh, there's no savings, there's no fuel savings by not running the the wind farm. So you simply throw the the electricity away if you do that. Um, um, the uh, these these periods that you see here, where we have um, where we have the production actually higher than the demand, uh, you might say, well, how is that possible? Well, this is when the pump storage scheme is running in pumping mode, and when our demand response that we have modeled in form of uh, warm water and electric vehicles is basically switching into into additional demand and absorbing additional energy because um, because there's like here for example it's uh, switching switching all the warm water geysers in the country on and charging them um, because there's enough sun during the day. So and um, and from a from a costing perspective you can you can now from from this picture uh, just knowing how much the costs are per kilowatt hour you can already see why this is cheaper because you have so the, the the area that you see is the equivalent of the energy that you that you dispatch. So the yellow area and the blue area is cheap at sixty cents a kilowatt hour. Um, the 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 gray area is expensive at one rand or one rand forty because it's natural gas. The peaking is even more expensive. But if you now just visually make the weighted average between large areas of sixty cents and then small areas of one rand forty. You can already tell, uh, uh, even with the even with the excess energy, that this that this system is cheaper than this one here, because this area costs one rand and nine cents, 
this area costs one rand, this area still costs one rand forty, and this here is the cheap area. So it's just visually clear that uh, this here must be more expensive than the other one. And um, now, from an from an operational perspective, the the the, the only the only real operational uh, uh, challenge, or where where you would say, well, um, we we have to find a solution to that, is um, is uh, the topic of uh, maybe let me go let me go here, um, the topic of uh, of system inertia. So um, in a in a, in a power system, in, in the conventional power system as we know it, we have a lot of synchronous generator connected uh, to the system. So this is actually quite a nice picture to to, uh, to explain the, the the logic here. So if you if you think of this shaft as the rotational uh, the rotational velocity of this shaft is the equivalent of our 50 hertz uh, grid frequency, and we want to keep that constant uh, all the time. So the shaft must not accelerate and must not decelerate. And um, in today's system, most of our power generators that are driving the shaft are synchronous machines, and the synchronous is is uh, depicted here with the with the chain and the I don't know how you call that. Um, sorry, it's my engineering in Germany. Uh, gears. Sorry. Gears. Gears. Okay. Yeah, the chain and the gears. So it's 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 a it's a solid synchronous connection. Yeah. Um, and now what what happens now? Um, uh, the stability of the system. You you try to design your, your your power system in such a way that if if your largest contingency happens, largest contingency means you have a loss of a power generator of your largest power generator, and you you must be able to still stabilize the system under such a contingency event. In South Africa, contingency event is 2.4 gigawatt at the moment, which is a loss of three large uh, coal units at the same time. Um, so if that happens in, in this in this analogy, what that means is that one of these chains simply breaks. Now, what happens clearly in that very moment when the chain breaks, the shaft will decelerate. But there is a force that that works against that, which is there are other there are these other synchronous machines that are connected to the shaft, and they have a rotational uh, um, they have a kinetic energy from their rotation, and because they are synchronously connected to the shaft. The shaft decelerates and takes part of the kinetic energy out of these generators. So the deceleration of the shaft has a certain inertia. It doesn't happen instantaneously, but there's a certain speed with which uh, yeah, the deceleration, the, so the, the first derivative of this, the change of the velocity. Um, is, you know what I mean, right? Uh, so it, it, doesn't, it doesn't stop just immediately because it has this inertia. Now, if you... Um, if you now assume that you, that you take away all these synchronous machines and you only run with asynchronous machines, like as they are shown here with this type of belt where you have a slip in between, um, if, let's assume all the blue generators are gone. Now, if one of these belts now breaks, now the shaft can decelerate very, very quickly because it can slip. Um, it's not synchronously connected to the generators. And now the, the, the green generators that you see here is the analogy to wind and solar because they are connected with power electronics to the system. There's no direct physical connection. And these here are your, um, are your generators in coal or nuclear power stations. They are synchronously connected to the grid. So that is an issue, but it's, um, it's, it's, it's an engineering challenge that, that needs to be solved. There are, there are technical solutions to, to address it. And what we have done is, because this is, this is one big topic that is brought up of 
why such a system is impossible to, to run and operate, despite the fact that there are systems in island grids where uh, systems run completely on power electronics and no, no rotational masses, but that is just ignored, it doesn't exist. Yeah? Mm -hmm. um, so, but what, what, we, what we wanted to show is that if you use existing technologies to address this issue, we wanted to cost that um, and want to show that there's, uh, at the end of the day, it's all a matter of cost and, and uh, how much does the technical solution cost us. So, um, so what we did is we, we calculated the amount of inertia, or to, to, be, to be more precise, it's actually not inertia what we are calculating here, but it's just, it's a common ter terminology uh, being used, but it's not the inertia constant that we uh, calculate, it's actually the, the kinetic energy in the power system. So it's really energy and not inertia that we, that we mean, but it's just, uh, uh, it's, it's used as inertia. So what we, um, what we did is we, we looked at the South African grid code. The grid code today allows uh, a maximum rate of change of frequency of one hertz per second in the largest contingency event. So that means if you lose 2.4 gigawatt, which is the largest contingency instantaneously, then the, the rate of change of frequency from 50 hertz downwards must not be faster than 1 hertz per second. Because if it's slower than 1 hertz per second, then you have enough reserves and contingency measures to actually stabilize the frequency. Um, <clears throat> so if you know that, and if you know that, then you can directly calculate with this simplified formula, but it works quite well, you can uh, calculate how much inertia kinetic energy measured in megawatt seconds do you need at any given point in time in the system to, uh, to make sure that your, uh, that your Rokov is one hertz a second or less? And uh, the demand for inertia is 65,000 megawatt seconds um, of inertia that you require at any given point in time in the, in the system. So 65,000 megawatt seconds, that's the amount of kinetic energy that we need. Now each and every power generator has an inertia constant, megawatt seconds per megawatt of installed capacity. Coal-fired power stations, gas turbines, um, so everything that's synchronously connected has an inertia constant greater than zero. And wind and PV, as you can see here, has an inertia constant of, uh, of, of zero. <clears throat> so we take all these inertia constants, and now we have, coming out of our model, we now have the hourly supply structure for each and every hour in the year. Now for each hour, we can now calculate what is the inertia slash kinetic energy at that point in time in the system. And we compare it to the 65,000 megawatt seconds that you require at the minimum. And then we, we produce an, an inertia duration curve where we just plot all the hours of the year um, on the x-axis and on the y-axis the inertia in the system, the megawatt seconds. And, and now this is the year 2030. And uh, we are now looking, sorry, this is just difficult to read. So blue is the base case, the IRP base case. Red is the carbon budget case. And green is the least cost case. And as expected, in the green case, inertia is generally lower because you have more um, power electronic-based power generators in the system. Um, however, by the year 2050, uh, by the year 2030, we only have a few hours per year where the inertia is below the threshold of 65,000 megawatt seconds. In other words, we have 13 years time to address a few hours of a problem uh, per year. In 2050, it looks very different, of course. Um, in 2050, least cost, I'm sorry, now the colors have changed, so it's not really, 
naturally smart way of doing it, but um, uh, now least cost is blue. Um, and in 2050, because we have such a high penetration of solar and wind, there are 50% of all the hours where the, in, where the inertia is below the threshold of 65,000 megawatt seconds. And now we take this requirement, the, the worst hour in the year in the year 2050, and we, we quantify that, and that is, I, I think, 60,000 megawatt seconds missing, if I remember correctly. I don't have the number here, roughly 60,000 megawatt seconds. And now we take that number, and we, uh, we now deploy um, uh, a known technology, uh, which is flywheels, and we deploy flywheels to provide 60,000 megawatt seconds in the year 2050. And then we basically make an assumption that from today until 2050, we will find no other technical solution than stupid flywheels um, <laughs> to provide us with kinetic energy in the system. Um, and it's just just a list of in, in principle of what the what the other options are that we that we have. Uh, so we have uh, synchronous compensators, rotating stabilizers, basically the flywheels, um, uh, with pumped hydro, of course, if it's synchronous, if it runs with uh, synchronous machines. Um, so there's a number of, of other options, but we just use the the flywheels, rotating stabilizer devices, um, and if we now cost them. <laughs> And we deploy enough flywheels to uh, to provide us with the 60,000 megawatt seconds um, in the year 2050. Then this will cost us. And now we have to go to um, yeah. Let's let's look at this one first, at the upper one first. So for least cost in 2050, it's 0.7 percent of the total system cost. That's what it would cost us to deploy. A fleet of, I think, uh, if I remember correctly, those five gigawatt was it there? No, 1.5 gigawatt of uh, of flywheels that would be sufficient to give us all the required inertia, and that would cost 0.7 percent of the total system cost. Now the difference between least cost and the base case was more than 10 percent. So there's absolutely no way that this will flip the outcome of the uh, of the optimization. Um, and now an, an uh, interesting, interesting thing. That's why you have two more those here. Um, uh, if if you ask ESCOM uh, transmission planners, um, they will tell you that to evacuate 25 gigawatt of nuclear from the coast into Gauteng, you would not do with AC lines. You would build an HVDC line. Now, if you run an HVDC line, then nuclear gives you exactly zero inertia, because um, the HVDC line arrives in Gauteng, needs to be converted from DC back into AC through power electronics. The power electronics don't really care whether there's a wind turbine in the back or if there's a line coming from nuclear power stations. So um, the 25 gigawatt of nuclear would give you exactly zero inertia if they are connected with an HVDC line. And if we cost that, if we assume that the nuclear fleet is completely connected with HVDC, then the cost... Um, the cost for the flywheels, which you would then need as well, in the carbon budget case, 0.6% of the total system cost. So it's um, almost the same as in the least cost case. Yeah, so um, I think this, this, I've, this I've mentioned. I, I've, uh, this from a previous discussion where I didn't show the results yet, but I showed you the results with the reduced cost. Um, so this is all fine. So let me just do the summary. Um, so basically what we found is that it's, that it's cost optimal to aim for a 70% renewable energy share by 2050. Um, 
And that's simply because PV, wind, and flexible power generators, and whatever flexible uh, is, can be gas, can be CSP, or hydro, or biogas, mm -hmm. or demand response, uh, that mix of PV, wind, and flexibility is the cheapest new build mix in the South African power system today. Um, and there's also there's no technical limitation in the in the solar PV and wind penetration um, over the planning horizon, and, uh, <coughs> and therefore the the result is basically that clean and least cost is not a trade-off anymore. Uh, so we don't have to decide how much clean do we want, and therefore we increase the costs. It's, it's the same. Um, the, 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 the objective function leads to the same outcome in, in both cases. We can therefore decarbonize the electricity sector at negative carbon avoidance cost, because the uh, Low carbon is uh, cheaper than the than the high carbon case. And with that, I guess I would thank you for your for your attention. There's some more stuff to come, but I think we make a cut here. Thank you very much. Maybe if there's some general questions to. Yes, of course, and I'm still here for. Of mm. course, I, I I guess we have a discussion now. So maybe. Yes, uh, colleague. Well, in the the flywheel technology. Yes. Purely mechanical? Yes. Or does it take into account something like an active magnetic theory? No, purely mechanical. Yeah. So state-of-the-art technology, and we costed it very high because we wanted to be really on the safe side that we are not... Um, so we, we, we assumed the flywheel to cost uh, 20,000 rand per installed kilowatt, which is two times the price of a combined cycle gas turbine. And a, and a flywheel is only a shaft with motor generator, so it's not really. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So if, if um, we don't implement the least cost case, uh, we implement uh, one of the ABSCOM uh, 2016 case, what happens to the, the cost model for that case if your customers start implementing the least cost case? <clears throat> yeah, that's a very good question because now you have now you suddenly have have two optimizing entities next to each other with mm. some interfaces yeah, in between, we'll know and it money, runs. Money Max will go around. Yeah, no, no, no absolutely. It's a very decision making. Yeah, basically, what happens? Um, so basically, what happens then? I mean, all these all these nice models are all based on the assumption that the demand, the not, not the total demand, but the but the uh, the actual the sold kilowatt hours. Uh, a certain volume, and the sold kilowatt hours are basically the same, the equivalent as the total customer demand. Um, and only with that assumption do we arrive at these costs per kilowatt hour. Now, if we implement this here, and if now, because this is 10% more expensive than the least cost, now more and more customers, and not, not just residential, but large industrial customers to decide to do their own thing, what will happen then, and the demand is suddenly, this demand is still 520 terawatt hours, but the sold kilowatt hours are much less. So if the, if the, the ESCOM sales are not 520, but now 10% less, then this year, which is the ESCOM tariff, goes up by another 10%. Which means? Roughly speaking, which means more industrial customers will do their own thing. Positive feedback. It's a positive feedback group, yes. I already call it this part. <laughs> so, uh, quite a, a, a difficult question to, to ask, I know, but in your opinion, uh, how, how receptive are government officials who make these decision, decisions to, to this kind of um, study? Uh, do you think your study has any chance at all of being listened to and, and perhaps adopted? 
Um, well, the, the, the adoption is another question, but I think it, it definitely has been listened to. So I think uh, I, I think we we brought a, a lot of a lot of new knowledge into the whole discussion. Um, and uh, and I would I would actually I would wish and I would hope that that more institutions in South Africa uh, build the capabilities to do this type of analysis, because um, historically it was it, it was literally only ESCOM who was able to do this analysis, and now and that was perfectly fine in a world where everything is steady state, because the only question was how many new coal stations do we build and when. It's not so difficult at the end of the day from an energy planning perspective. Yeah? Um, <laughs> But even that you can get wrong. <laughs> but um, but but now if you're in a transition phase, now clearly, I mean, it's incredibly difficult for the incumbent to um, uh, to plan a system where the incumbent's market share is drastically reduced. <coughs> it's it's almost uh, it's it's almost unethical towards ESCOM to ask ESCOM to do that. Um, so I think we need more, and, and now we've, we've built that capability in the CSR, we, so we are able to do these, these models, and it's really the, 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 the purpose of that is to put, to put more knowledge into that whole discussion so that, that informed decisions can be made. Um, but we would wish that, that more entities, like more universities, uh, other researchers do the same, uh, build the capabilities, and challenge what we are doing. I mean, of course there are mistakes in what we are doing. Uh, it would be much richer discussion if others would do the same same stuff. Yeah. Yes. Um, thanks for the presentation, Tobias. Um, there's a question about the capacity factors allocated to PV and CSP as well. Yeah. Um, are the capacity, capacity factors uh, for PV and wind a result of the model? Uh, I think mm -hmm. that's what you said. Obviously, then based on um, input data that you guys use for for the, the, the weather situations, with the wind or the, the, the GHI yeah. across the, the country. Do you guys use a wind platform so, for that? So, so for um, in, a, in a low penetration case like here, the uh, the capacity factors for wind and PV are, but the for wind and PV we use profiles. So we have an hourly profile that we feed into the model. And the profile has a capacity factor yes. because it is a profile. So, so and that and that doesn't change. Okay. So it it, uh, it depends on the meteorological data sets that we are using. Yes. Yeah. And in in such a low penetration case, the useful amount of PV and wind energy is exactly the same as the actual production because there is no curtailment. Now, in the in the least cost case, you do have quite some curtailment. So the useful energy is now lower than the capacity factor in in an ideal world, um, but that's the only source of curtailment is when you have uh, when you have too much uh, supply from solar and wind. Um, so you basically have for both solar and wind you have the maximum supply availability, and the model then decides to curtail, but only in these in these uh, situations. Right. It's, it's actually it's it's very similar to nuclear um, because the cost structure of nuclear and solar and wind is very similar. <coughs> you, you build it, and once you've built it. In a nuclear case, you have a rectangle that you can supply. In the wind and the PV case, once you've built it, you have either a bell shape or 24-7 um, variable supply curve that you can supply. And in all three cases, you want to utilize it as much as possible. So you want to be as close as possible to a rectangle for nuclear, and you want to just follow what the available solar and wind resource is for the others. Um, 
and uh, and if you have and you have if you have too much penetration or not not too much but if there's so if you have a high penetration then you will come into curtailment situations it's like like france today i mean if you you could you could argue that uh, curtailing the the nuclear fleet at night in france is exactly the same as curtailing solar and wind here it's exactly the same situation yes what's your view about the solar csp what do you think you can do to reduce the cost? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good, it's a good question. What, what exactly the reasons are for the cost reductions? But uh, I guess the only thing that I can tell you is that if we reach certain cost levels, then we will have this effect here. So, 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 so the best we can say at the moment is that if CP, if if CSP costs us one hundred twenty then it's not part of the solution. If it costs us 80 cents, then it is part of the solution. That's the best we can say at the moment. So the, the, the CSP case is actually a tricky one. So you would basically have to move very careful step-by-step step forward. And, and, and probably in the implementation, you would have to run small procurement rounds, a few hundred megawatt here and there, and just test if the, if the tariff can actually achieve what you need to achieve in order for CSP to be part of the solution. And, and you need to have a clear exit strategy to say, well, if you, if you realize, well, it will never go below the 120, then you should just stop at some point. Yeah. One last question. Um, thank you. Yeah, really interesting talk. Um, if you could have some data that you maybe don't have or some data you do have in a finer granularity and say a lot more computing power, how would you change your modeling process and what do you think the, the, the payoff would be? Um, actually, it, w it wouldn't change. The results wouldn't change. And uh, to, be, to be brutally honest with you, I think we are now already overdimensioning the whole thing. Um, because, because the cost differences are so clear that you could basically, what, what I what I cannot tell you on a blank sheet of paper is this here for the CSP question. That's something where you have to model it and you have to dispatch the CSP with different levels of thermal storage. But what, what you and I can produce on a sheet of paper is, is the result that, that a new build mix will include lots of wind, lots of solar, and flexibility, and no new coal and no new nuclear that we can write down analytically on a sheet of paper. But because uh, analytically a few lines on a sheet of paper to many um, are seemingly not uh, not complicated enough and therefore <laughs> and therefore not and therefore not trustworthy. Yeah? So sometimes you need a super complex model that nobody understands and ah, now I can trust the results because it's so complicated. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I think that was very interesting entertaining. Okay. So thank you very much. Thank you. Small token of appreciation from wine from the Cape. And it's always great to come to Cape Town because you go back home with a uh, with a bottle of wine. Thank you. Thank you. Very much. Thank you. If you're interested in that event, uh, in what would be a discussion event, you can write down your email and then we'll send you uh, some information on that. Um, and then the M5 is closed if you turn off towards the N1. Uh, uh, so, if you need to take another route, you want to go to the suburbs. Okay.
Okay, thanks. Enjoy the evening then. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Really interesting.